Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer session for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on three topics. How the government stimulus checks increase drug overdose mortality, what is new with COVID treatments and mask efficacy, and the U.S. House elections and gerrymandering. Our first speaker is the University of Chicago labor economist, Professor Casey Mulligan. Casey was the chief economist in the Trump administration. He's just written a new paper showing that there's been increased drug and alcohol-related deaths that can be directly linked to the supplemental government stimulus checks. Casey has spoken three times previously on What Happens Next, and the last time he mentioned this link between cash and drugs, and I got a lot of pushback from my audience, and I told Casey so. And then he went to work looking at the real data to prove his point. I think you will find Casey's analysis to be quite provocative. Our second speaker today is Dr. Ari Cement, who is a pulmonologist and works in the COVID ward at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Ari is a regular speaker on the podcast, and he's back because of popular demand. Here are my topics for Ari this week. Who should take the antivirals, and are they even available? Does Omicron cause bacterial infections, and should you take antibiotics to preempt the infection? How do you treat long COVID symptoms? Will steroids have a renaissance to combat viruses? Under what conditions should I wear my mask as Omicron caseloads decline? And do these masks even work? Our third speaker today is Kyle Kondik, who is the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's University Center of Politics. He will be discussing his new book, The Long Red Thread, How Democratic Dominance Gave Way to Republican Advantage in the U.S. House Elections. Our discussion will focus on gerrymandering and the likelihood of a Republican takeover of the House. Every month since the outset of COVID, I've spoken about the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report. Well, it looks like we got to expand our analysis to the CPI report as well, because inflation is taking off and we need to understand what's going on here. For the past 20 years or so, inflation has been under control, incredibly low and stable despite aggressive monetary policy. Well, no more. Well, let's look under the hood at some of the detail of this month's CPI report. Here are the headlines. CPI for the last 12 months was up 7.5%. I want that to sink in, 7.5%, which is mind-boggling high. This compares with the Fed inflation target for 2021 of 2%. Oops. And during the last 12 months, the Fed kept the Fed's funds rate at zero. I think everyone, including the biggest monetary doves, would say the Fed is way behind the curve. All right, let's look at the detail. Energy is up 27%. Gasoline's up 40%. Electricity's up 13.6%. And this is even before a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Used cars were up 40% year-on-year. New cars were up 12% if you can even get one. Shelter makes up a third of the consumer basket. The government statistic for shelter includes a proxy for rent and housing. Shelter inflation, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, was up 4% year-on-year. But the increase in the median home price was up 14%, and that's an enormous discrepancy. Think about it. If we had used median home prices instead of the BOS's shelter proxy, CPI would have been up 11%. We hear arguments that inflation will be transitory, but we're seeing inflation across the board, services, goods, and labor. I'm not sure that this supply chain problem that could be corrected at the LA ports. My expectation is that interest rates will need to go up and that fiscal policy will need to be tamed. After the CPI release, the interest rate on U.S. Treasury two-year notes moved up by 20 basis points on the economic release, and the Fed is considering a 50 basis point increase at their next meeting. I am currently short long-term bonds as I think that rates are still too low. 
The market has a 10-year real interest rate of negative 54 basis points and a 10-year inflation forecast of 2.5%. I think both are too low. All right, let's change topics and let's move ahead and bring in University of Chicago economist Casey Mogan. Casey, please begin your six-minute presentation. It is becoming more clear that the pandemic produced an abnormal number of deaths of people who did not have the virus. Today, I share results using especially the Centers for Disease Control's online tool for tabulating death certificates through June 2021. Although we know from other sources that feelings of depression and loneliness were elevated during the pandemic, the good news is that suicide deaths during the pandemic were a bit less than before. This is also confirmed by some of the emergency department data on treatment for self-harm. But deaths from drugs or alcohol are way up. Through the first 15 months of the pandemic, they were almost 50,000 above what they were before. A bit of this is a continuation of prior trends, but we are still 40,000 above that. Drug and alcohol deaths have never increased so much over such a time frame. The people who died in this way are a lot younger than people dying from COVID. One measure is life years, with more than 7 million life years lost from drug and alcohol during this time. For men, their part of the 7 million is more than the life years they lost from COVID. For every drug or alcohol death, there are more than 100 people with ongoing substance use disorder, which is modern parlance for drug or alcohol addiction. For the substances alcohol, narcotics, and meth, I estimate that 47 million Americans have substance use disorder, 8 million of which are above the previous trend. They will show up in a lot of metrics of economic and social activity on an ongoing basis, and employment and labor force participation are likely among them. The economics toolkit readily explains what happened. Our federal government was sending people massive amounts of cash, on average $30 per household per day. Normally, incomes go down during a recession, but in the pandemic, personal incomes increased record amounts. It would be wishful thinking to suppose that exactly zero of that money went to drugs or alcohol. It's true that national savings rates went up a lot, meaning that on average, households spend little of the money on anything. But we know from prior research that people with potential for drug and alcohol abuse are not average. I guess that they saved too, but still not as much as the average. We know from prior research that liquidity is quickly followed by somewhat elevated mortality from alcohol and drugs. This effect is especially strong when the liquidity is not coming with any incentive to invest in job-related human capital. Indeed, the pandemic payments were big disincentives to be working. Quantify the income or liquidity effect as well as price effects. I consider alcohol, narcotics, and psychotropics separately. Alcohol-induced causes include acute alcohol poisoning, but also deaths from chronic alcohol-related liver disease. By the CDC's convention, it does not include drunk driving accidents. Narcotics deaths are almost all involving opioids of one type or another. Deaths involving psychotropic drugs are primarily crystal meth. Alcohol has its own price changes, which I relate to the shift of drinking from bars and restaurants, where alcohol is expensive, to home where alcohol is much cheaper on a per-gallon basis. As a quantitative matter, we know from historical data how much each percentage reduction in alcohol prices translates into additional alcohol deaths. The restaurant-to-home shift is much less relevant for illegal drugs. For them, I focus on the full price, which is the sum of a money price and an opportunity cost. 
Consuming dangerous drugs requires time to acquire, administer, and especially recover from them. So the full price involves the value of time, which is where the unemployment bonuses come in. Unemployment benefits have always been around, but what was novel in the last two years was very large bonuses. These are policy-induced shocks to the value of time, in addition to changes to the value of time coming from other sources. One prediction from this economic approach is that organic opioid deaths would not increase and may decrease, and this actually happened. Another prediction is that opioid deaths overall would increase proportionally more than meth deaths, even though opioids include some of those categories with reduced deaths. Again, that happened. Another prediction is that combined deaths from alcohol and drugs, which were about 130,000 at an annual rate in 2019, would peak at about 180,000 in summer 2020, which is exactly what happened. The economics predicts a 25,000 drop when the bonuses stop. Again, this happened. The economics says that when the bonuses come back on in January 2021, the death rate would go back up to 180,000. Again, that's what happened. The economic approach accurately predicts patterns by substance, demographic group, and time. For example, the double peak time series I described for drug mortality should vary across age groups because they have different rates of contact with the unemployment system. This actually happened. Throughout the pandemic, I warned, including on this show, that fiscal policy was wildly disproportionate and disruptive. Audiences were always upset that I even suggest that well-intentioned fiscal policies might have lethal consequences for thousands of people. Perhaps all that has happened is a coincidence. All I can say is good luck trying to understand the very real and serious substance abuse problems without touching the economics toolkit. This didn't have to be a post-mortem analysis. Should we have raised taxes on alcohol when the government gave these cash payments during the COVID crisis to minimize the damage? Other countries, and I use their experience with alcohol taxes, Gorbachev had increased the alcohol tax and Yeltsin had cut it, and the deaths moved right along with that. Finland had also cut their alcohol tax, and they had a bunch of deaths come on. So it's something to consider. My job is just to say what the consequences are, are of these things, and it's our elected leaders who need to weigh the choices. But they need to know what the consequences of different choices are, and that's my job. Alcohol use increased during the pandemic and likely changed behavior for the short and long term. It will have consequences in the years ahead for sure. How do you think about a broad increase in alcohol use as one of the problems of a lockdown and social isolation. This is a human capital type of issue, and, and being addictive to a harmful substance is a loss of human capital. And it's one of those legacies of the pandemic that we'll have. Now, one could make the argument, well, it was worth sacrificing the human capital to make ourselves feel better or, or whatever that may be. But still, as an economist, I can say there will be that long-term consequence, whether it was a good choice or a bad one. That's the way life works. Uh, choices have consequences, even if they were justified choices. When the government bonus checks were proposed, you predicted that these payments would result in a surge in alcohol and drug deaths. And as a result, you were attacked for these predictions. What was the essence of these attacks? Well, I'm not a psychologist. I, I can guess, you know, knowing some of the people, uh, they, they felt, and I agree, that these policies were well-intentioned. And so anytime you have good intentions and harmful, unintended consequences, it can be upsetting. And you'd rather imagine a world that those aren't happening. The sort of people I talk to are not accountable. So if they're wrong, as long as they don't notice, it all, all feels okay. Some economists and politicians advocate a negative income tax. 
individuals would receive periodic payments from the federal government independent of work effort. One of the consequences of your research is that these proposals would tend to increase access to alcohol and drugs, resulting in more deaths. Why don't people worry about the negative consequences of government payments replacing work? doesn't get talked about a lot. Before this pandemic, we had studies. And it was found the key issue was because none of these programs happen in isolation. When the government's cutting the checks for the people, what are kind of the strings attached? Are they encouraged to get engaged with work or, or the opposite? And a lot of the programs that have happened historically, we're encouraging people to engage with work. So you didn't see these kind of effects. Another issue would be that the United States is different in terms of especially drug problems and the prevalence of them. And something then that might work in, in Norway might have a very different effect here because the dangerous drugs are a very real option over here. America has some of the lowest employment participation rates in modern times, and that was true even before COVID. And it was a function potentially of government programs that allowed or encouraged people not to work, but to choose leisure and that included availability to both alcohol, opioids, and other drugs. Should we consider the consequences and benefits associated with work and the negative consequences associated with certain elements of not working? Well, we want to recognize that there, there are complements, as we say. They go together, being not work and, and the substance use, not on an every person basis, but on an average basis. And the causality, therefore, goes in, in both directions because they are kind of joined like that. And drugs have gotten a lot cheaper and a lot more available, and that can discourage people from working without any other any change in fiscal policy. Is that a benefit or a cost? I mean, there's a certain libertarian point of view that would celebrate somebody's opportunity to take these drugs, even if it's they're risking their lives. But certainly there are family members and a lot of people upset. I mean, that's part of where 2016 came from. A lot of people upset at attending these funerals, and they would say, please, consider these unintended consequences, we really want them to go away. Your recently published paper links COVID checks with alcohol and opioid deaths using novel econometric methods. Can you explain how you proved your thesis? Well, I have a model. Now, in, in the alcohol case, it's a fairly straightforward demand model. And there we have historical estimates that I mentioned earlier, Finland, Yeltsin, Gorbachev, places in the United States. We have an idea how price translates into alcohol deaths or alcohol consumption measured in gallons. But today we're talking about the deaths. There's also an income piece, which I looked at the amount of income and said, well, let me just suppose that people get all this money and they spend some of it and they spend it on a lot of things, not just alcohol, not just drugs, kind of according to how they bought things before. But they got more money to buy the things that they bought before. Meth is similar, except all the drugs. I have this employment connection. And there, we knew a lot about how money prices affect drugs. That's been studied a lot. And then I said, well, the opportunity cost of not working, that's in addition to the money cost. Not only you have to spend money, but you hurt your ability to make money. So I just translate it. And that's a standard tool, at least since Gary Becker in economics, to think about prices as having these two parts, a money part and a time part. Once I take that step, it's fairly easy because I know how much the bonuses are. I mean, they're $300 and $600. Pretty easy to measure in, in the world of illegal drugs where the money prices actually can be quite hard to measure. Now, what's most novel is work that I had done before the pandemic is the opioids have these two organic and synthetic products that are coexisting. The shock to the market we had seen before, and I expected we would see it again, can cause people to switch from the expensive prescriptions or even heroin by comparison 
being expensive to something cheaper like fentanyl, especially fentanyl. And so the shocks kind of get amplified compared to the alcohol and meth cases. Again, we had seen that before. We had seen various policy changes around prescriptions. And then we were surprised like, oh, gee, these people switched to fentanyl and they ended up dying more than they were dying on the prescriptions. And I had a numerical estimate of that from before pandemic. So I used that number as well to apply. This is not an exact science. I'm not using the scalpel here. There's a lot of sensitivity analysis in the paper. And if somebody tells me, Casey, you were off by 20% or on this effect or that effect, it's hard to argue in a number of these elements. While we have five or six different pieces and some are maybe overestimated, some are underestimated, and maybe the total's not so bad. Deaths in the United States are up year over year. Our natural tendency is to assume that the increase in deaths relate to COVID. But you're saying that the increased mortality rates could result from changes in behavior caused by the lockdowns or bad government policies. I mean, there's two parts to that. I mean, a lot of the movement to being at home would have happened anyway. Certainly, we had state governors and counties putting down rules, but a lot of people would have done that anyway. And there would have been deaths, especially alcohol deaths from that anyway. And maybe also the drug deaths too. So it kind of blame on the pandemic. The government can make it better, maybe could warn people, maybe not overhype the dangers so that they're running home in cases when they don't really need to run home, like 20, 25-year-olds maybe didn't need to run home. I would blame that on the pandemic. And one of the things I want to look for in the data going forward is the other countries that didn't have our policies, but obviously had the pandemic, what happened with them? And I think you're going to see alcohol deaths in an awful lot of countries. The drug deaths are, in my view, much more tied to the fiscal policy. Now you could say, well, we had to have that fiscal policy because of the pandemic, but other countries didn't have that fiscal policy. So we didn't have to. Maybe you decide it's a good choice. And this is just an unfortunate byproduct of a, ultimately a good choice. But it's a choice that other countries did not make. So I'm not expecting to see elevated drug deaths nearly to the degree, even in percentage terms. I mean, we were already starting from a high base, but in percentage terms, I don't expect 30, 40% increases in drug deaths in, in other countries. Other countries do have drug deaths, but at a lower level, and I don't expect they increase so much in the pandemic. Your paper uses loss of years of life as a metric. If a 90-year-old man dies of COVID, the expected loss of life might be a year. If a 20-year-old dies from a drug overdose, then the loss of life might be 70 years or 70 times more. How should we think about loss of life years in public policy terms? I mean, it's a tricky issue. It happens on both sides. So and it's not really 20-year-olds that are dying. I, I think the thir- I estimated 33 life years left from the drug deaths compared to the COVID deaths, which were maybe like eight years. It's in the paper. Now, somebody who's 45 who dies from drugs, maybe they weren't going to live to 75. Maybe they were just going to live to 65. I-, I can see that. But also the 75-year-old who died from COVID, maybe they weren't going to live to 82. They were going to live to 76. So it-, it goes on both sides. I think people have the perception that these dangerous drugs are like instant death, and they are not. There's over 100 people have a substance disorder. (laughs) And that's the flip side. I mean, the chances of dying in a year are less than one in 100. So the life expectancy of someone using these dangerous drugs is pretty long. The drug's probably not going to kill them in the next 20 years. It's just that there's so many people using these drugs. And one out of 200 chance of dying is, is not a chance I want my children taking or I would have taken for myself. That, as occupations go, that's probably a bit more dangerous than being a commercial fisherman. But still, it's not an instant death. And you hear stories like, oh, 
so-and-so took drugs for the first time in their life and they dropped dead. I mean, that there's enough people taking drugs that that happens every once in a while, enough to make it in the newspaper, but that's not, I don't think, what the data show us. How have other economists reacted to your COVID and drugs paper? Well, I was kind of pessimistic, although the president of the NBR had me make a video yesterday about it. He's very excited about the paper, which very much surprised me because a lot of them were cheering for the bonuses and were upset with me when I said that this might be a side effect of it. My profession is very much moved to become what I call causality police. They don't want to talk about something and unless it's a postmortem. I mean, in this case, literally, they, they want to see a smoking gun that, that proves that whatever hypothesis is actually guilty or, or, or the real cause. And that's going to take decades. I, I think the circumstantial evidence is strong. I think we're all our Bayesians when we really want to make a decision in life. But the Bayesian approach is not the vogue in my profession. And, and why is that? I mean, we've made some technological advances that people are excited about, and they're kind of, that's, their vision is a little bit narrow because that's what, where the progress is. And, and then the progress is a good thing, but sometimes you lose sight of the rest of the landscape. Let me explain what Casey meant by, we are all Bayesians. Thomas Bay in the 1700s was a mathematician who created a formula that incorporated your own personal predictions in the model. You have your own predictive value, and then after seeing some results, you then adjust your probability estimate from there. Let me give you an example. Let's say you live in Miami Beach and you want to estimate the high temperature tomorrow to figure out what kind of clothes to wear. And your guess is 80 degrees. And then in fact, the high temperature comes out to be 68 degrees. And then for your estimate for tomorrow's high temperature, you would adjust your guess for tomorrow's high to be just 77 degrees. And the relevance of Bayes to this discussion is that Casey made a prediction that if, if you give money to someone who just left their job and is an occasional drug user, he expected them to buy more drugs and that some of them would die. In contrast, other economists in his field would be agnostic about the relationship and they would want to set up experiments to figure out if there was any relationship between having more money and mortality due to increased drug use. Now, it makes a big difference in experimental design and analysis if you start with a working assumption how the world works. The reality is, is that that's exactly how all of us interact with the world. My next question for QKC is causality. How can we be sure that there wasn't something else going on that could cause the increase in fentanyl deaths? Like, let's say the police were too scared to bust drug dealers because of COVID, and that was the true factor. I mean, it's a great question. Certainly, if there was just one spike in April, you'd be like, well, a lot of things happened in April. When you get the second spike in January, now we're starting to wonder. We had the red and blue states change their unemployment benefits at different times. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, the data I only have is through June 2021, so we can't do that. But in six months or a year, we can make that sort of comparison in principle. The psychologist Jeremy Chlorphine was on What Happens Next, and he highlighted that during COVID, that in-person therapy for drugs and AA were closed, and that this loss of in-person therapy caused lapses and drug deaths. I mean, that's the thing I would take seriously. I had a paper over a year ago where I said, you know, lots change with supply and demand, and we're going to need to be worried. And one of the things is people are being alone. It could be just simply they're not there to call 911. Because again, these things aren't instant death. You have some kind of acute situation. You're not dead immediately. And if you're with somebody, you might be saved. People are trying to 
kick the habit and it helps to have companionship to be successful there. So it could have been a very big factor. I don't know quite how to measure it yet. You know, maybe different states would have been different in terms of allowing people in that profession to, to engage with each other again. Casey, you presented on what happens next four times. One of the reasons that I keep having you back on the program is that you are a very creative economist. You choose very important and controversial topics and then apply innovative methods to underutilized data sets. Tell us the interesting things that you did in this paper. For each one that dies, there's over 100 who are using. And so there's potential for a lot more and sharper data on consumption. Now, when it's illegal, it can be tough, although law enforcement data can be helpful there. I like to have data on the law enforcement activities. I mean, I live in a county where they don't put people in jail anymore or prison. And has that been a factor? That's a pretty different story than I told in the paper. But we know, for example, in these data that the increase, and this was coming before the pandemic, the increase for blacks is very different than for whites. Is that because they're in cities that don't really put people in prison anymore and then drugs are much cheaper and more available? I I don't know, but these are the sort of things to investigate. I do know some MDs who are looking at data on prescriptions. That's a legal market. And they told me they're finding quite a bit more opioid prescriptions. Was it opioids or benzodiazepines? which are often used with opioids. I don't remember which they were finding, but that's an example of the type of study that can be done. And and then you can get some pretty reliable numbers in those sort of areas. You can sense that, pay a lot of attention to the measurement here because when you're dealing with potentially illegal products, it's a big concern. Often what we do is driven by our ability to measure. Were there differences across races related to drug deaths for COVID checks? I haven't looked at that super thoroughly. It was pretty similar. It's just that the blacks had this higher trend, especially on opioids. Blacks were not having opioid deaths for many years. People say, well, that's because they didn't have prescriptions. And they talk about why don't blacks have prescriptions. Interesting topic. But once fentanyl came into the markets in a permanent way, which is more or less 2015, 2014, the narcotics deaths among blacks started growing like crazy and it passed the whites in 2019 and it's continued at a faster pace. Dynamics and the differences by gender and stuff, I don't see that much difference, but it's not something I studied exhaustively. And it's a little tricky because, you know, blacks are, I don't know, 13 or 14% of the population. So there's that much less data for them. It tends to be a little noisy for some of these questions. Angus Deaton won the Nobel Prize for Economics for his work related to the declining life expectancy of white men related to drug deaths caused by opioids. And you seem to be saying that these drugs are hurting African-Americans in a bigger way. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, it already happened when they were put that book in press. Uh, Like I said, they were from between 20, let's say 15 and 2019, a lot more deaths among blacks. They had reached par with the whites by that point, and then it's gone past. So that that was maybe not good timing on their part. It, It was a nice story for many years, but not anymore. What government policies can reduce drug deaths? One thing I was urging for in the White House, had a lot of trouble, I'm afraid, was just for the government to think about, well, what is it doing to add to the problem? Because you would think, in principle, the government could control itself. But neither Democrats or Republicans are all that interested in that. They would rather blame pharma companies. Maybe a political entrepreneur could figure out how to do it. Because we still subsidize prescriptions. The doctors and hospitals realize if they sent home a nice big bottle of Oxycontin, that 
they would get a bigger bonus from the federal government. And they obliged and did it. And we only got rid of that in 2019. And CMS, the agency in charge of that, went kicking and screaming. Trump had to force them to do that. And they said, no, we don't need to do this. There's no reason to think that prescribing, blah, blah, blah. So we subsidized benzodiazepines, which people like them with opioids. In fact, anesthesiologists, they if you have a surgery, a totally legitimate surgery in a legitimate hospital, probably they're going to give you fentanyl and a benzodiazepine because it, it makes the fentanyl work better. And the recreational users know this. And Obamacare, for the first time in our history, began subsidizing benzodiazepines. Medicaid, they knew that they were abusive and abuse potential there, and they refused to cover them. But no, Obamacare, we have to cover everything. So they covered that could be reversed. Obamacare could be repealed altogether. If it did, that would go with it. But certainly that part of Obamacare should be considered because there you're subsidizing fentanyl (laughs) because it's something people use with fentanyl. Emptying the prisons has consequences. Again, it's not for me to weigh, but I think we'll want to recognize that maybe the reason we have so much fentanyl is because is it just a coincidence that within months of ending the federal war on drugs, as Obama and Holder put it, that fentanyl came in our country to stay? It had been in our country dozens of times before, going back to the 70s. And the DEA always found it and beat it back, put the people in prison. Then they changed the sentencing policy, and within months, we have fentanyl in our country in a very big way. Actually, at the same time in 2014, Sweden got fentanyl in their country, and they escalated their war on drugs and they beat it out. So this is, again, (laughs) there's more questions than answers, but the questions need to be raised. And I haven't heard anybody raise the question of, you know, is the drug problem one of these unintended side effects of incarceration justice or whatever, whatever they call it, criminal justice? How can we improve the war on drugs? I'm a big fan of innovation and trying things. And some of the states out west are trying safe injection sites. And I'm very skeptical, but I believe you ought to try, even an idea that seems bad. I mean, innovation is needed here. Casey, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? Innovation. We've had a lot of health problems historically, waterborne diseases, polio, COVID itself, AIDS. They seemed pretty intimidating at the time. And innovation maybe didn't totally solve the problem, but they made the problem a lot more manageable. And so I'm optimistic that medical innovation will help in this area too. Casey, thank you so much for your remarks. All right, let's shift gears and go to our next speaker, Ari Cement. The hospital numbers are coming down as the percent positivity of cases locally are coming down. The oral antivirals are not really accessible in any hospital. They're only for outpatients. So it's now widely available to get Paxlovid and malnuprevir, and it's still very available even to get outpatient monoclonal antibody. Ironically, it's easier to get monoclonal antibody, citrovimab, through concierge practices than it is through hospitals. Omicron has become the dominant variant for a while now. What would you recommend as the treatment for a COVID-positive patient who is 55 years old without comorbidities? Part of your question should also be, vaccinated or unvaccinated, or double vaccinated or triple vaccinated. So we'll go through your scenarios. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to need to be so aggressive. In fact, I got a call yesterday about an unvaccinated. That patient needs to be very aggressive and needs to get citrovimab somehow and needs to pay up. You need to look for a reason to qualify if you're unvaccinated. If you're double vaccinated and you're 55 years old, 
I would also recommend trying to be as aggressive, either the monoclonal antibody or the Paxlovid. I still don't think that there is a need to get molnupravir if you have a better medicine out there, Paxlovid. So I would use either Paxlovid or the monoclonal. If you're triple vaccinated, then it's case by case, but the likelihood of being hospitalized triple vaxxed is very, very low. I think the number is something like five in a million. So forget about it. I wouldn't say forget about it. I would still offer the Paxlovid for anybody over 55 and offer the citrovimab. If there are any risk factors that give you a higher risk, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, then the risk-benefit ratio then shifts in favor of taking something like Paxlovid. And then you can see how if you have symptoms with the medicine, then you can stop it. How should you incorporate having had COVID in that calculus? The data keeps on switching back and forth. It looked like before Delta came along, natural immunity wasn't as good as double vaccine. And then after Delta, natural immunity was better than the vaccines. And now with Omicron, maybe the vaccines were actually better if you have triple. I would say a general rule of thumb that seems to me that natural immunity is equivalent to like two vaccines. I think the takeaway message is if you had COVID before, and I'm not talking about COVID like in the last month, I'm talking about COVID like back in 2020, I would get one more shot, even if it's the baby booster, Moderna, just to cover yourself. Does having COVID symptoms change that dynamic? Another great question. With the other variants, we were so fixated, rightly so, not on the actual illness itself, but on the cytokine storm. And and even if you were asymptomatic, we would be pushing a monoclonal ASAP. It seems that Omicron is really a completely different bug. And the way we've been practicing, and it's turned out, if you get over the Omicron, there doesn't seem to be a secondary phase like there was before. So you're feeling better. We don't have to give you the Paxlovid. We don't have to give you the Citrovimab. One caveat is that we do see secondary bacterial infections that have developed shortly after the Omicron infection and getting the immune system a little boosted might help prevent that. That's speculation, but it might have prevented some of those secondary bacterial infections we saw in some of those patients. And the flip side is people who have post-COVID syndrome, should we be more aggressive treating those asymptomatic or lower symptomatic patients early on to prevent that post-COVID syndrome? No one knows the real answer to that. The way we've been practicing is you're asymptomatic or low symptoms, then we're not really pushing those medicines. My dad was a cardiologist, and he got really frustrated when patients would take antibiotics when they had a virus. What we're describing to me is that post-Omicron, you have a bacterial infection. How do you feel about antibiotics in lieu of monoclonals? How would you feel about going with a Z-Pak or other antibiotic to reduce the chance of getting a post-bacterial infection? A lot of the concierge practices are sending home patients with a Z-Pak and, and Paxlovid together. and There is no clear evidence to do that. In fact, you might make things worse by giving an antibiotic too early because that patient can now develop some resistant bug later on. If I am going to use an antibiotic, it does make sense to give a macrolide antibiotic. Doxycycline has some, at least in vitro activity, antiviral effect, but it has no clear documented 
anti-COVID in vivo evidence, there's a risk of giving antibiotics for a viral infection. Potentially, you're going to provoke further resistance later on. Just the point is that you should be on the lookout because you are immunosuppressed after a virus. How does the cytokine storm, the pneumonia, and the bacterial infection interrelate? The cytokine storm that we were seeing with the other variants was not necessarily a bacterial superinfection. The markers didn't demonstrate that there was another infection going on. It was just a heightened inflammatory response causing inflammation in the lungs. We would treat it with anti-inflammatories and not antibiotics. The vast majority of people with Omicron will just get better afterwards. But there are some people that have immunosuppression and then develop some sort of bacterial superinfection, which is different than the cytokine storm that we were seeing before, where it's just a pure inflammatory response. Can you recommend treatments for long COVID? There aren't any specific treatments for diagnosis long COVID syndrome. Long COVID covers everything. It's either fatigue, it could be shortness of breath, if there's actual lung involvement, it could be like persistent brain fog, word recall problems. You're going to see different treatments based on who you see. So if you see a neurologist because you're thinking slow and akinetic, they might give you Dexedrine and Adderall and Ritalin. But if you see a pulmonologist like myself, because you're short of breath, you might get an inhaler with inhaled steroids and an albuterol, breathing exercises. There are some antioxidants people use like N-acetylcysteine. There is no FDA-approved medicine currently for long COVID syndrome other than off-label drugs that we use for other things. So for instance, perfenidone is a drug that we use for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. They are currently in phase two trials looking at a form of perfenidone for long COVID pulmonary issues. If you do have long COVID syndrome and try to enroll in one of these trials, a lot of these medicines have very few side effects. There's one trial on vitamin C and a slew of vitamins. I have to admit that I have used concoctions of vitamins for patients to see if it helps their long COVID syndrome. Vortioxetin is an SSRI that's being studied for cognitive effects. There is a trial with medical cannabis. I had long COVID symptoms after I left her hospital in December 2020. I had poor balance. I couldn't walk a block. I got a physical trainer. I got my strength back in a few months. My pneumonia was pretty bad, and I got easily winded and had poor aerobic capability for, I don't know, 6 to 12 months until I got my conditioning back. I had brain fog, but that went away after a year. Does exercise and the benefit of time, is that the real answer, or does a patient need a pharmaceutical solution? Certain patients like yourself had a pulmonary condition. You really had some damage done, and it takes time for the lung cells to regenerate. And in your case, specifically, you sort of just want to buy time and you try to limit the amount of pharmacologic interventions, which all have some certain side effects. Sunlight, PTOT, increase your stamina. That's much better than taking Adderall and Dexedrine. And you just needed time, but it was clear in your case that you had pulmonary involvement. There are other patients that have 
cognitive defects and they don't have those infiltrates ever on their CAT scans and their x-rays. So those are the ones that explore pharmacologic options. A patient with severe brain fog was also desaturating while walking. I actually put him on steroids, even though it's late, and he immediately got better. If you go to some rheumatologist, they give crazy high doses. They'll give IV a gram a day for three days. I've seen that used for long COVID. I personally think that's very, very high. The vast majority of people do get better over time. So if you can do natural things like increasing physical activity, going outside, getting sun, that has demonstrated definite benefits. Let's talk about steroids next. You gave me an old-time generic steroid when I was in the hospital with COVID, and it worked like a charm. What do you think of using steroids for long COVID? I think we learn a lesson from the steroids themselves. We are sometimes our own enemies. We're over-combating the illness. We're causing this inflammatory response, and that's what the steroids are doing. We're going to slow it down. For years, we always have said, if you have influenza, if you have a viral illness, don't give steroids. That's why it was very difficult early on to adopt steroid usage when it came to coronavirus because people were really scared that you're going to cause the virus to blow out of control. But once we saw that a lot of the cases were actually dramatically improved, then we started employing it as an outpatient therapy too. And reluctantly, you would first wait a few days if the oxygen levels drop, then you would give the steroid and then miraculous things happen. I think we are going to be using steroids more frequently for viral infections or whatever it may be. Say post-COVID, you have a nagging cough. Is there anything to be concerned about there? It's very common after any viral illness that your whole body is out of whack. And the same things that cause cough before are likely what's causing it now. Post-nasal drip, reflux. So before somebody starts to think that they have a recurrence or they have a severe pneumonia, it might be worthwhile to see regular treatments that are over-the-counter like intranasal fluticasone for nasal sinus rinses, neti pot, pepsid, or the omeprazole treatments that are over-the-counter. Next topic is masks. Cities like New York City have announced an end to the mask mandate, but each individual can make their own decision based on their own health risk profile and the situation. Are there situations where you would suggest mask wearing or social distancing? Right now, our percentage rate is 13% local positivity. We're still considered high risk because we're above 10%, but we're not wearing masks because Omicron is basically a cold if you have three vaccines. So at this point, even from a sense of responsibility to another person, it's okay to go mask-free. Unfortunately, the people that are immunosuppressed are at higher risk. They, unfortunately, will have to wear an N95 mask. That's my opinion. So at this point in the game, we should wear it around somebody that is having symptoms, if you're having symptoms, but not have to go out wearing the mask everywhere. Again, that's my opinion. Let me give you some hypotheticals. Would you go to a Miami Heat game, 15,000 people in an indoor stadium, and if you do attend, would you wear a mask or not? I would bring my mask and I wouldn't wear it because I am triple vaccinated. The variant that's around here locally is Omicron. 
And I am going to bring it with me because if the guy next door to me is coughing up and looks pretty sick, I'm going to put it on him. Why not just go home? <laughs> I'll go home. It depends how good they're playing. But Larry, that's a very important point because whether or not you believe or don't believe in masks, the very basic idea is that even if you're wearing a mask, you're not protected if somebody is highly infected blowing virions your way for two hours. It's like you're wearing a raincoat and somebody's blowing a hose at you. Eventually, you're going to get wet. Don't let it get in the way of your life and other people's lives. You also have to be mindful. You're just making a statistical argument, I think, that if the mask protects you from, say, 90% of the virus, and if you get a very substantial viral load, 10% is a big problem. To follow that point, that's why it's called an N95. It's not an N100. N95 filters out 95% of particles, but there's 5% that come in. Do you know what the N stands for in N95? No, I don't. Not for oil. That's funny. I don't wear N95s. I wear these paper and cloth masks that I buy on Amazon. Do they do any good? I chose that mask because it really doesn't interfere with my breathing. It doesn't keep me particularly warm. Does this mask materially reduce the likelihood of an infection? That just came out in a case control test negative study. It was done by MMWR. You can look at it on February 4th. They tried to look at whether or not masks work and which mask is the best to use. What they did is they tested people. If you're positive or negative, either way, they would call you two days later. And the people that were positive were matched with people that are negative, the same age and sex. That's what the case control was, and it's a test negative study. And what they found was that if you were positive, they asked you questions, you were wearing the mask all of the time, 60% of those patients said they were. If they were negative, 70% said that they were wearing it all the time. So basically what they were saying is that shows that you were much likelier to be wearing a mask and be negative. They said you have an 83% less likelihood of testing positive N95. You're 66% less likely if you wear a surgical mask. And then in their diagram, they even wrote you have a 50% lower risk if you wear a cloth mask. But if you look closely at the article for cloth mask, it crosses one, the p-value, so it's not even statistically significant. So that's a little misleading there. There is a lot of criticism on this article. If you want to hear a very good rebuttal, you could go watch Vinay Prasad, who is a very brilliant guy. He's a MPH, MD, MPH, but he wrote a paper in November 2021 the Cato Institute, and it was very anti-mask, is looking for flaws. Be mindful for it. Let's have some fun and learn about your mask decision-making process. You get into an Uber with a driver who's a stranger. Mask or no mask? If there was a low threshold of pain, I would personally wear a mask. Go to your local synagogue and it's packed. I would say now is the time to come off with the mask and show that it's safe to be with people. Give me some examples where you would wear your mask. Somebody had recent COVID and he's day five. I'll bring a mask for that interaction. You're on a flight from Miami to New York City for three hours. Mask or no mask? It's not mandated. I would say how I acted pre-pandemic. Put a fork in it. You're done. Yeah, I'm pretty much done for the time being with an open mind that if we have another variant that's scarier, do it again. This is the part of the show where I ended on a note of optimism. Ari, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic. Numbers keep on going down. 
and I'm hopeful that this is it. Thanks, Ari, for joining us again. All right, let's move on to our next speaker, Kyle Kondik. I've asked Kyle Kondik on today's podcast to discuss four topics. First, why did the Democrats have a majority of the House from the 1930s all the way to the 1990s? Two, why does the House change majority so frequently now? And is there a bias or advantage to one of the political parties? Third, after the 2020 census, the redistricting process is now in full motion. Will some states choose aggressive gerrymandering, and will that be determinative as to who win the House for the next decade? And finally, fourth, what are his near-term political predictions for the midterm elections? All right, Kyle, please begin your six-minute presentation. So the long red thread tells the story of U.S. House elections from the early 1960s, why the House went from being a body that was dominated by Democrats from the New Deal all the way through the early 90s to one that isn't really dominated by either side, at least not like the Democrats used to dominate before the early 90s, there are three kind of big takeaways. First one is the nationalization of election results. For many decades, the Democrats were able to win a lot of districts that had become pretty Republican at the presidential level, and voters split their tickets, essentially. Vote Republican for president, but vote Democratic for House or vice versa. And so, like 1976, for instance, the Jimmy Carter-Gerald Ford race, Carter won by only two points over Ford and was very competitive all across the country. You had about 30% or so of the House districts in 1976 voted for Carter, but then voted for Republican House or they voted for Ford for president but voted for a Democrat for the House. In 2020, there were only 16 districts out of 435 that voted for one party for president, one party for House. And one of the consequences of this nationalization is that the presidential results in a district are likely to reflect the House results. And the median House district typically is a little bit more Republican than the nation as a whole. A second thing that broadly helped Republicans is political realignment. A lot of this has to do with the South, which is the most populous region in the United States. It was about 30% of all the House seats in the 60s. It's up to about 35% now. The South used to be really Democratic. Democrats would routinely win 75% or more of the seats in that region. Now Republicans control almost 70% of the seats in the South. Democrats dominate the West Coast and the Northeast. The Republicans dominate in the Midwest, particularly the interior West and Great Plains. But the realignment in the South, I think, has been very important for Republicans, not just in winning the House initially in 1994 for the first time in six decades, but then also keeping it over time. Democrats used to have a lot more control in state government. Therefore, they would dominate the redistricting process. If you look in the 70s and 80s, you have many more instances of Democratic gerrymanders, you know, districts drawn to benefit Democrats over Republicans. But over the course of the 90s into the 2020s, the Republicans have been able to exercise more control over redistricting. Republicans started to control the drawing of more district lines than Democrats did, and that, of course, is helpful to them. So those are the three big factors that contribute to what I see as a small Republican advantage in House elections now where Democrats used to dominate. The Chicago and your suburbs are very blue, and elsewhere in the state it's very red. And the voters in the red region can't believe that they have little or no representation in the congressional delegations. Now, under Illinois Governor Pritzker's 2020 redistricting plan, the Democrats will gerrymander downstate, eliminating many of the Republican seats. Redistricting uses the latest technology going neighborhood by neighborhood to get just enough Democratic votes to knock out the Republican congressmen. Will downstate Republicans revolt because they are denied representation? 
Illinois is a great example of a state that's been gerrymandered by Democrats, and this is the second cycle in a row. New York Democrats just unveiled a pretty aggressive gerrymander in that state. Then you also have Republican gerrymanders in places like Texas, North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida. Now, one of the things that's happened in some of these states is that statewide ballot measures enact some sort of prohibition on gerrymandering or some sort of limit, and Democrats have proposed trying to do that at a federal level. The most recent big Democratic voting bill would set some standards in place that would sort of knock out districts that went too far. If you're a Republican in Illinois or a Democrat in Texas, you probably feel like the deck is stacked against you. You mentioned Illinois. There's one that goes from East St. Louis all the way to Champaign-Urbana. It's just a snake that <laughs> picks up as many Democratic areas as possible in order to create a Democratic-leaning seat. Both sides end up doing it. I think what the difference has been in recent decades is that Republicans have had more power to do it than Democrats have. And that's why I think that, that Democrats have been more interested in some sort of federal solution or federal guidelines for redistricting. Let's use Staten Island as an example. Staten Island itself is not big enough to have a single House member, so it has to be connected to the rest of New York City. And under the current map, it's connected to places like Bay Ridge, more kind of conservative-leaning parts of Brooklyn. And then this map connects it instead to Park Slope and other parts of Brooklyn that are really pretty Democratic. Of the 40 most densely populated districts, the only one held by a Republican was New York 11, which is the Staten Island seat. You have this conservative Republican bastion in the midst of an otherwise very Democratic area, although it actually is possible, given that there are Republican pockets in Brooklyn, it would be possible to draw a Republican seat in those places too. One of the things about New York is that voters did actually create an independent redistricting commission Clearly, the commission wasn't strong enough, so it was essentially sabotaged. Democrats didn't really want to play ball with it, and it didn't really produce any proposals. The Democrats in the state legislature, they now have two-thirds majorities in the state House and the state Senate, so they were able to pass their own plan. Democrats, for the first time in modern history, had unified power in New York, and they're using it. The state constitution in New York suggests some prohibitions on having districts that are not that compact. The Republicans could win a court case on this, although the Democrats control the court. There's a similar situation going on in Florida where the shoe's on the other foot, that the Republicans are the ones trying to gerrymander. There are prohibitions against gerrymandering written in the state constitution, but the court is very conservative. So will the court actually enforce the constitution or not? Is there any advantage or bias that favors one of the political parties for U.S. House raises. Biden won the presidential popular vote by four percentage points, and voters no longer split tickets. So why don't we see a larger Democratic majority in the House? Biden voters are highly concentrated in particular states like California, Massachusetts, New York, and Illinois, and the Republican voters are more diffuse. Is that the critical variable? Population density issues that you raise are sort of a disadvantage for Democrats in the House. There's specifically a really good book that came out a couple years ago by Jonathan Rodden called Why Cities Lose. And he doesn't believe that the Democrats are sort of a natural geographic disadvantage everywhere, but he particularly thinks that they are in some of the old industrial states in the North, so like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan. Even if you were drawing a fair map, the Republicans would still have an advantage because of over-concentration of Democratic voters in urban areas. There are significantly more kind of landslide Democratic presidential districts, you know, places where Joe Biden got 80 or 90 percent of the vote. If you're a Democrat, you could gerrymander those places and then extend them out to surrounding areas to try to make more Democratic seats. It's effectively what Democrats have tried to do in Illinois. Biden won the national popular vote, it's like 4.4, 4.5 points. The median House seat, if you just rank all the districts, Biden won by about two points. So the median House seat's about two points to the right of the nation. Moving on. 
1965 Voting Rights Act concentrated African-American and Hispanic voters in these districts that are supercharged for the Democrats. And the Black Caucus was very happy to get these African-American congressmen. But on the national level, it hurts Democrats because they couldn't combine the African-American voters with the suburbs to create slim Democratic majorities. And then in 2010 in Illinois, for the first time since 1965, the Democrats decided to reapportion some of those African-American voters into the suburbs to flip suburban districts. Does the Voting Rights Act advantage the Republicans? Do you think the Democrats will undercut the Voting Rights Act to end African-American congressional representation to win more House seats? And do you think the Black Caucus will agree to it? The Voting Rights Act was changed in such a way in the early 1980s that sort of made it suggest that there was an interest that should push the creation of more majority-minority districts. And so one of the things that happened in the 90s, and this was a time where Democrats still had a lot of control of state government, but George H.W. Bush was president and the Justice Department decided to use its power to uh, give preclearance to maps, particularly in the South. That doesn't really exist anymore based on Supreme Court decision from several years ago. But back then, the Justice Department said that you have to draw more majority-minority districts based on the Voting Rights Act. And so that had the effect of creating more districts that elected Black and Latino members in certain places to the House that ended up bleaching effectively the districts that surrounded those in the South to the point where it contributed to Republican seat flips. Back 30, 40 years ago, you'd think in order to elect a non-white member from a district, you need to have a majority non-white population. I don't think that's really true right now. And actually, Illinois 14 is a good example because Lauren Underwood is a Black Democrat, but that is a majority white district. The Trump-driven realignment, small town areas got much more Republican, but a lot of suburban places got much more Democratic, and that allowed the Democrats to achieve their goal in Illinois. Split ticketing. When I was growing up, people would say they were independent, voted for the person, not the party, and then split their tickets. Does that even exist anymore? I recently perused the Almanac of American Politics that details each of the 435 congressional districts, and I was surprised how the voting patterns for the House elections and the presidential election in that district were virtually identical. Gary Jacobson is one of the great congressional scholars, and he said that this was the strongest correlation between presidential and House results since 1952. There were nine districts that Biden won, but a Republican won for House. And there were seven districts that a Democrat won, but Trump won. And, you know, sometimes the differences are pretty minute. If you ask people their party ID, 35% say independent, 35% say Democratic, 30% say Republican. Gallup will ask people their leaned party identification. They'll ask the independents, hey, do you lean toward a party or not? And pretty quickly you get to 90% plus saying that they lean to one party or the other. I think a lot of those people who call themselves independents are effectively lying to people or they're lying to themselves because they generally do have a strong preference. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, Lyndon Johnson winning effectively 60-40 in 1964, and then eight years later, you have Nixon winning 60-40. That's a lot of people changing their votes over time, whereas now Barack Obama winning by a little over seven points in 2008 is like a landslide, and all the elections since 2000 have been closer than that. So you don't have as so many people changing their minds in suburban districts, places that used to be pretty Republican. A lot of those places are becoming more Democratic, but the Democrats are kind of hollowing out in some old industrial centers and small towns and medium-sized cities, places like Youngstown and Warren, Ohio, or Wisconsin and Minnesota, sort of outside the big urban areas. 
Tom Davis, who's a former Republican congressman from Virginia, has this great way of saying that American voters have become parliamentary in their voting patterns, meaning they really are voting for the party as opposed to the individual member. The value of incumbency is far reduced. There's less ticket splitting. And in some ways, that probably means you've got a fairly well-ordered set of policy priorities or things that you care about in politics. And it probably makes more sense for you to vote a straight ticket than it does to split your ticket. People just sort of digest politics more through a national lens, and that's led to more nationalized voting patterns. Newt Gingrich, who I think is a really important figure, when he was toiling away in the minority, one of the things he really wanted to do was get these Republican voting presidential districts to vote for Republicans for the House. Well, all these different factors that have nationalized politics contributed to this lack of ticket splitting. New Jersey voted for Biden over Trump by 16 points. And in the November 2021 governor's race, the Democrat won by only 1%. And then down ticket, the state Senate president lost to an unknown candidate that spent like 1500 bucks on his entire campaign. What just happened in New Jersey? The presidential election year is just a lot different than the off-year elections. It's very common for the presidential party that holds the White House to struggle in these elections. The party wins a majority with the presidential election, then they end up losing it two years later with this midterm backlash. The non-presidential party is sort of more motivated to show up. There are also swing voters who are upset for different reasons. Biden's numbers were bad. I've heard some analysis of voter file in New Jersey and sort of who came out to vote and who didn't. It was a combination of Republicans had disproportionately good turnout and also folks who may have voted for Biden in the past switched to voting Republican for governor. And there are more crossover party governors. Maryland and Virginia have Republican governors now, as does Vermont and Massachusetts. Those are all blue states. I think Virginia is still a blue-leaning state, despite the fact that Republicans won these most recent statewide elections last year. Republicans did 11 points better than they had done in 2017 in both governor's races. 2017 was a great Democratic environment. 2021 was a great Republican environment. 2022 is shaping up to be a good Republican environment nationally, although you know we've still got a lot of time until the midterm. Larry Bartles, a Vanderbilt professor of political science, espouses the idea that when you switch political parties, you adopt the views of your new party. The best example he gives is Republicans who switched parties in 1974 because of Watergate also changed their view on abortion. Why do your political views change when you switch political parties? The leaders of the party help set what people actually care about and believe in politics. And it shows that people's political views can be sort of malleable. So like, let me give you a specific example. So the Democrats are trying to pass this Build Back Better package that has a number of different things in it. You can poll on those individual issues and often find a lot of support for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those people want the government to prioritize it. In fact, I think that Biden's problem and the Democrats' problem is that they're not seen as focusing on the stuff that people actually care about, be it getting past COVID or inflation, which used to be a big problem in American politics, hasn't been in recent years, but now is again. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there, I think. Let's compare realignment in two House congressional districts. The first is the Illinois 10th, which includes Glencoe, where I grew up, versus the Ohio 13th, which includes Youngstown. Illinois 10 includes the wealthiest suburbs in the Midwest and is trending Democratic. When I was born, Donald Rumsfeld represented this district. And until Trump, it used to switch back and forth between the parties every two years. Ohio 13 is a working class community that was historically Democratic, and that's now trending Republican. What's going on here? It's a great question, and you pick two good districts because one of the numbers that I really look at, particularly in the Trump era, that I think is almost always telling about where a district is going is what's the percentage of four-year college attainment? 
And Illinois 10 is very high. Ohio 13, which is Youngstown-Warren District, Obama won by 25 and historically been Democratic, and Biden only won it by uh, three or four points. In the Illinois district, four-year college attainment is really high. In the Ohio district, four-year college attainment is pretty low. If you have a combination of substantial non-white population and a substantial highly educated population, those are going to be districts that zoom toward the Democrats in recent years, and white working-class districts have zoomed toward the Republicans in Trump years. Looking here at my Almanac for American Politics, in the Illinois 10, 56% are college or postgraduates, but in the Ohio 13th, it's only 24%. One of the interesting tidbits I learned from reading your book, Long Thread, was about Texas in the 60s. And the stat that really shocked me was the 1962 Texas congressional delegation had 24 Democrats and zero Republicans. 24 to zero. How could Texas be that lopsided? I thought that the Republicans were players in Texas in the 60s. I think it's more accurate to say it was conservative, not necessarily Republican, because, of course, Republicans had very little power in that state, although Kennedy barely won Texas in 1960. And look, there's some belief that there was shenanigans in South Texas. Was there substantial voter fraud in the presidential election in Texas in 1960? If you read the Robert Caro, Linda Johnson books, there's pretty good evidence that there was fraud in South Texas that maybe allowed Johnson to win the Senate and also Kennedy in 1960. Texas was effectively a one-party state. However, the Democratic delegation was filled with some of the most conservative members of the House. But over time, those conservative Democrats died off, became Republicans, et cetera, and the party sort of got more ideologically um, cohesive over time. After the 1960 presidential election, Nixon was informed of the election irregularities in Texas and Illinois, but he chose not to escalate the matter. Why has this political norm changed? Biden mentioned in his recent press conference that he expects to see massive election fraud in the next midterm. How did challenging elections and voter fraud impact turnout? I think anger can be kind of a motivator in the lead up to the Georgia runoffs had the effect of giving the Democrats a little bit of a turnout advantage in that election. However, there's also some belief later on throughout 2021 and into the Virginia election that the Republicans' feelings that the election was stolen was actually giving them motivation to vote, anger being a great motivator. And so I do think our elections are a lot cleaner than they were back then. It's not wrong for a candidate to allege there's some sort of problem if, in fact, they've got some evidence that there was a problem. It's just that what's been tricky about 2020 is I don't think that Trump has really produced good evidence in favor of his allegations. But North Carolina, there was a House race in 2018 where there was sufficient suggestion that there was fraud, that they actually did a do-over election. The results actually ended up being roughly the same. The Republicans very narrowly won both times. What do you think partisan turnout will be in the midterms? Republicans have something of a turnout advantage in these kinds of elections. There also is some broad dissatisfaction with Biden amongst certain Democratic groups that are already kind of lower turnout. Biden's numbers amongst the youngest voters are really pretty weak, even though the youngest voters is also generally the most Democratic demographic at this particular point. Biden has also seen declines in approval with non-white voters in general. Black voters still broadly approve his job performance, but not nearly as high as you'd expect for a Democrat, Latino, Asian American, et cetera, as numbers are low. And those groups don't have a high turnout propensity anyway. So there might be some folks who just are dissatisfied with Biden and decide not to show up. In terms of the Georgia example, turnout in the runoffs, I think overall was extremely high. It was within range of presidential level turnout. It may have been that Trump's antics after the election had more of a mobilizing effect on Democrats than it had a demobilizing effect on Republicans. But with Trump not on the scene anymore, I think it's harder for Democrats to use Trump as a foil for turnout. 
In your book, you discuss midterms of the past. Unpopular present parties have lost 40 to 60 House seats during midterms. But today, due to the redistricting process, there are so few competitive seats. I mean, a five-point national shift will not flip that many seats. There certainly were a lot of landslide seats in past generations, too. Now, I will say that there are fewer competitive seats than there used to be. Also, I think this really stands out at sort of the statewide level in that there are less competitive states in the Electoral College than there used to be. Years like 1960 and 1976, you had dozens of states where the presidential vote looked very similar to the national vote. A lot of the big states, you know, Texas, California, New York, Florida, were all competitive. And, you know, there's still competitive states now, but there are many more that are landslide states. You do still have big swings in the House. I mean, you know, the Republicans picked up 60 seats in 2010. Democrats picked up 40 in 2018. Even if the Republicans have a really big year in 2022, the sort of raw number of net gains won't be as big because they already have 213 seats. Back in 2010, they only were in the 170s, so they had more seats to gain. I wrote something recently for our Crystal Ball newsletter, sort of speculating, like, could the Republicans get to their biggest House majority since the Great Depression, which would be 248 seats? That would be a 35-seat net gain. That would be a huge landslide, even though the net gain would still be less than in previous years just because they're starting from a higher point. Although the Democrats have been drawing a lot of seats that are Biden plus eight or plus nine or something. So Democratic-leaning, but not overwhelmingly so, if the Republicans are going to have a big election, those are the seats they would need to flip. In perusing the Almanac of American Politics, which, by the way, is a must for political junkies like me, you can see that there are little to no Republican flip opportunities in the South. All the opportunities are in the Mid-Atlantic, Northeast, and Midwest. These are where Biden won districts by just a few points. The South is historically not very competitive because it was either really strongly Democratic or really strongly Republican now in many of those places. You have like a deep blue Democratic districts surrounded by a bunch of really Republican districts. You know, the Midwest historically is the most competitive region in American politics. There are districts in Michigan and Pennsylvania that are not as Democratic as they used to be. When there have been waves, you feel it a little bit more in, in the Midwest in particular, just because the region is broadly pretty competitive. What are your current predictions for the 2022 midterms? If the conditions that we had in November for Virginia and New Jersey are still in place, you definitely expect the Republicans to win both the House and the Senate. That's sort of my default position right now, just because Biden's numbers have been weak for the past several months, and they're not showing any signs of getting better. And I do think that the Biden approval number is the most important number in looking at these elections. The Republicans only have four real targets in the Senate, and I wouldn't pick them to win all of them at this point, but you'd probably expect them to get two or three. And in the House, probably somewhere in the 20s in terms of a net gain, we'll put them basically in the 230s in terms of total seats, which is a decent-sized majority, but not so big that the Democrats couldn't flip it back in 2024. The Republicans have to defend Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Do you think they're at risk of losing either of those Senate seats? In a year like this, you'd expect the Republicans to be able to hold on to those seats in states that are very competitive. If Trump were still in the White House, I'd probably be saying the Democrats have a great chance to flip both Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But the fact of Biden being in the White House changes the dynamic. And you've got Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, Democratic seats that Biden won. Nevada was two and a half points, and Georgia and Arizona were less than a point. So it wouldn't take much. The big story of the 2020 election was changes in the political party preferences for the Hispanic voter. Arizona and Nevada have a substantial number of Hispanic voters. Is there a Hispanic realignment going on? There are polling indications that the Democratic problems with working-class voters of all stripes are continuing. Think about a state like Nevada. 
that has been narrowly democratic in the last few elections. I mentioned the importance of white college-educated suburbanites in places. I mean, yes, those voters exist in Nevada, but Nevada doesn't have super affluent, highly educated suburban areas like Metro Atlanta or Northern Virginia or Minneapolis, St. Paul, et cetera. Nevada is more of a working class state. You could see a further erosion for Democrats amongst Latinos and Asian American voters, at least in the context of 2022. And that is really important in a lot of these districts and states. And again, Nevada and Arizona top the list. Arizona does have a lot of Democratic trending suburban places around Phoenix. And that's part of the reason why Biden was able to win the state. Do you think Republicans benefit by replacing Trump with DeSantis at the top of the ticket? If the Republicans had a new nominee in 2024, that would actually be a great thing for the party because they could keep some of the Trump Republicans in the party who have become so alienated from the Democratic Party that they'll vote for basically any Republican now. And then you also have a friendlier voice to appeal to some of the people who the party has lost. What if the Republicans were a moderate like Nikki Haley? My guess is that there would be some fall off from the people who love Trump more than they love the Republican Party. And there are polls about this. You ask people, you identify more with Trump or more with the Republican Party, and Trump is the higher number. The white female suburban voter in the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and Northeast were anti-Trump, and those districts swung Democratic. If Nikki Haley were top of the ticket, would that affect the female suburban white voter? I think we can sometimes overstate the importance of identity politics, be it with gender or race or what have you. My guess is that it wouldn't have that big of an effect. What is more important, the politician or the policies? I think it's more party than person. What do you mean by that? There's a dynamic in American politics called negative partisanship, which means that you're, there, there are some people who want to vote more against the other party than for their own. I end each session on a note of optimism. Kyle, what are you optimistic about? I don't think gerrymandering is the be-all and end-all of politics in the House the way that I think some people do. I do think that there are encouraging signs that there are reform efforts going on that might dull the impact of the practice. The number of states that are using commissions or otherwise sort of imposing some sort of standards on redistricting to take the edge off gerrymandering, that's sort of increasing. And so I think that that's probably a positive House story, again, just limited to the House. Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Casey, Ari, and Kyle for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. I'm very excited to have Eric Coffin back on the program. Eric spoke about the decline of free speech on campus and the lack of diversity of political opinions among the faculty. I've asked Eric to tell us about what is going on in Ottawa. What are those truckers doing and what do they want? Have the Yellow Jackets moved from Paris to Canada? Our second speaker will be University of Chicago economist John List who will discuss his new book entitled The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. We're going to learn about scaling for apps like Uber and why most great ideas don't scale efficiently, because there's some feature that's embedded that can't be ramped up. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.